Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. From WYPR in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore. Welcome to Future City. Each month on this show, we lift up examples of innovative ideas making positive changes in other cities and ask, could it work here? Is it already working here? And if not, why not? This month, we explore an exciting lifestyle movement known as the Maker Movement. Today, the Maker Movement has evolved into an entire lifestyle philosophy based around one central premise. Why have someone else do it when you can do it yourself? Maker spaces are popping up all over the country, including right here in Baltimore. In fact, six months ago, Baltimore opened one of the biggest maker spaces in the country, OpenWorks. There's a real sense of pride and optimism surrounding the maker movement. But is this really possible? How has it worked so far? And how effective can this movement really be when so many people don't even know it exists? And instead of closing the opportunity gap as it intends, is it actually breaking it further apart? In today's episode of Future City, we'll ask all these questions and more, focusing on how we can best help these artistic and educational spaces thrive in communities throughout Baltimore. My first guest today is Dale Darty. Dale is responsible for creating the maker movement as we know it, so in essence, he's the founder of the movement. He started Make Magazine, a publication that fosters a do-it-yourself attitude toward everyday technology, as well as Maker Faire, an event that highlights innovative new ideas happening in cities all around the country. Dale, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Glad to join you. Thank you. So now, so, so Dale, before I get into any specifics, I'd love to hear how you actually define the maker movement. And so what exactly does the maker movement mean to you? Well, I think in, in some ways it's a, it's a community of people uh, in which there's all kinds of, of makers, people who, who um, create and produce and build things. And in some ways it's the intersection of, of like uh, science and technology with arts and crafts and, and in some ways inventing new ways of, of making things. So, so if I design a robot, I'm a maker. If I am in woodworking, I'm a maker. If I do computer coding, I'm a maker. So is, is, is that the definition? Right. Yes, I, I think in many ways I, I, I tried not to overly define it because it actually wants to be very inclusive of all kinds of making. It's a process. And, and uh, I mean, you could do it digitally, but uh, what we tend to focus on is, is creating physical things. It's really the process of taking an idea, developing it, iterating over it, and realizing that idea is something you can share with other people. So when, so you started Make Magazine in 2005. What had you been doing before this, and how did you actually discover that, that making was going to be this thing that you were going to, uh, to build out? You know, I have background in sort of computer publishing and, and both as a sort of a writer and a, and a book publisher and a conference organizer in, in sort of the early Internet. I created the first commercial website in 1993, and I was kind of following what people were, were up to, what, what, what they're enthusiastic about, what they're passionate about. And I, I think in the you know, early, you know, 10, 12 or 13 years ago, really kind of thought that uh, – People at the time we were talking about building apps and and Facebook and and all all that, but I, I kind of saw a group of people like building robots, doing things and tinkering, and I had the idea that this is how we learn about new technology. This is how we learn to do new things, and uh, I, I just started following that and finding almost by putting together 
you know, the pieces of it begin to see, you know, there was a whole map of people doing really different things. They didn't necessarily see themselves connected to each other, but I did, and I wanted to, you know, particularly through Maker Faire, create a, a big umbrella tent, you know, and say that they all fit underneath that. And you mentioned the Maker Faire. What exactly is the Maker Faire? Uh, you could kind of think of it as a reinvention of a county fair, but instead of like pigs and pies, people are bringing rockets and robots and, and all kinds of things. And I, I really wanted it to, to be a place where a maker could talk about their project and show it to others. And uh, you as a, um, a, a guest can ask questions and learn from that. And I hope it inspires people to see themselves as producers and not just consumers. And so, so okay, if, I, if I'm a first-time person walking into this Maker's Fair, tell me what I see as soon as I walk into the Maker's Fair. Well, first of all, you see a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, How many people and, are going to attend this? You know, it'll be about 150,000 people over uh, two and a half days. Wow. And it is kind of on a fairgrounds sort of site. So there's, there's buildings and there's outdoor things that, uh, you know, you might see robots <laughs> scurrying around of all different sizes. You might see art cars uh, from Burning Man. You might see uh, uh, flame um, throwers of, of different kinds of, of, of sort of flame art. And then as you go inside, you're going to see a lot of things like 3D printing and the applications of, of 3D printing or different kinds of technologies. And, and a heavy emphasis probably on electronics, you know, gadgets. And, and, but, but instead of overly commercial devices and things, it's, it's more like people are trying to solve a problem of their own. And you'll also see, like, we have a huge dark room. So a lot of people are doing things with light. And some of it's very artistic um, and some of it's more functional. And do you will, will will you see a large corporation that is that that is is you know kind of you know doing their new inventions? So for example, you look at some of the conferences that take place in in Vegas, where you see mm-hmm. you know here's the newest here's the newest thing that's going to be coming out from Amazon or the newest thing. Yeah. Will you see that at a makerspace? Well, I think you'll see the companies there. You don't always see them. You know, we might have you know Google and Microsoft, Intel uh, will be there. Um, they're not doing the same thing they would do in Las Vegas. I, I don't think it's not necessarily a product showcase. Mm. I think they're looking at sometimes like Intel is often demonstrating the makers that are inside that company and some of the products that they make um, that enable makers to create new things. And so how exactly does this work from a from a city perspective as you go to different cities? What, what's what's the business oh. model? How exactly does that yeah. work? Yeah. So we we set up a way a little bit like TEDx, you know, where you can license um, uh, Maker Faire and 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 create one in your city. So last year we had 191 Maker Faires in uh, 38 different countries. Um, about 98 oh. of those were in the U.S. Uh, and and uh, so we see it. Um, we have our largest fairs are in uh, Shenzhen, China, Rome, Italy, uh, New York, and San Francisco. And what then becomes the follow-up from a from from a fair? Once a city holds a, a maker's fair, uh, what what is what is generally the next months look like within that city, and well, how exactly is that sustainable? I think you know, uh, I think maker fair is one aspect of the maker movement. The other side is is physical maker spaces. Ideally, a maker fair is helping to. Uh, create awareness of the need for makerspaces, say, in a city, but also um, uh, drive traffic to existing makerspaces. So they could go there for workshops if they want to learn um, how to use a technology or, or create a project, um, they might go there. But I think I, one of the things that I haven't mentioned it in the early, you know, really from the 
first Maker Faires, I just saw how many kids were coming to Maker Faire. And, and I thought, you know, it's kind of blowing their mind, seeing something they don't see on TV, seeing all these creative applications and stuff. And I, I felt like inside of them says, this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. But where do they go on that Monday after Maker Faire? Where do they go to learn how to acquire these skills? And, and that's, I think, the role of Maker Spaces. And uh, so we're seeing them in schools and libraries and then outside in the community as well. So we've been talking with Dale Darty, the founder and CEO of Make Magazine and also Maker Faire. Uh, and, and Dale, you were actually just recently in Baltimore for Light City, and you had a chance to see some of our Maker Spaces. Uh, what did you think, and, and what, how did you feel about that experience? Well, it was great. I mean, I was there um, to promote a book called Free to Make that I, I've written at the Light City Festival and gave a talk. And it was super. But I, while I was there, I visited Open Works which is uh, a community maker space. Yeah. Uh, the other one was uh, the Digital Harbor Foundation, which was a rec center on Federal Hill in Baltimore that is um, really uh, for young people to come and learn how to do the, um, you know, learn new technologies and learn how to create things. Both of them are fascinating. Um, you know, Federal, I mean, the um, Digital Harbor Foundation focuses explicitly on youth, and uh, OpenWorks is, is really probably a little bit more adult-oriented and and there, it's a place where someone, I don't know what the number is, but, but probably something like $150 a month, you know, gets a stall and has access to tools and materials. And they can, you know, I saw people there making guitars and other person, you know, doing bioprinting, another person using laser cutters to create stencils. And so it's it's a little kind of like an artisan village there of different people creating things. And it, it allows them to get started uh, in a business, perhaps, and find work in the community that, uh, you know, they can turn into, you know, eventually into, into work. So, I mean, and you have 191 of these fairs that are taking place. You've yeah. seen best practices and you've seen worst practices. Uh, what do you think Baltimore needs to do to ensure the continued success of these spaces? A lot of it is about having the spaces where uh, young people can access them and, and having the right set of rules, in a sense, in terms of access. What I, it really was, again, in both of those, you know, Digital Harbor Foundation is, is doing a great job in, in attracting young people, but what was fascinating also to me about OpenWorks is it's, you know, they had gotten some state and city funding, I believe, because at at I think the heart of their mission is creating some economic opportunity in the city for people who live in that area. We've been talking with Dale Darty, the founder and CEO of Make Magazine and also the Maker Fair. Dale, it is great having you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. I'm excited that one of the most influential members of the movement is now joining us, Mark Hatch, author of The Maker Movement Manifesto and founder of TechShop, a creative community that provides access to instruction, tools, software, and space around the world. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you, Wes. I appreciate it. So, so Mark, you joined the movement in 2007. What was the thing that drew you to it, and what was your background that led you into the maker movement? Well, I was at a, um, a software party in the Bay Area, and a, a guy over my shoulder said something along the lines of, it's like Kinko's for geeks. And I had run <laughs> a the software party. party. <laughs> it was a software party. Yeah, well, you know, it was an industry event of some kind, yeah. right, that they do these. Um, but it was late in the evening, and, and so, you know, people's hair was down. 
And I, I heard him say it's like Kinko's for geeks. And I had actually run the geeky part of Kinko's across the U.S., um, you know, the area where all the computers are and you can print stuff and, and so forth. And so I cornered him later, and he said, well, we're, yeah, you know, I, I run a place that's just like Kinko's, except instead of letting people use copy machines, I let them use industrial tools. Hmm. And I was like, you know, like welding machines and injection machines and like yeah exactly i was like no there's no way you're doing that then he invited me up i went and saw it and um you know there's a, this uh, quote out there that says the future's already here it's just not very evenly distributed mm-hmm. after meeting members of the community and seeing the kinds of things that they were doing it was clear to me that there was going to be a a major space like the one i was at in every major city on the planet the question really was how long was it going to take that then led to the idea of Tech Shop. Can you, can you talk a bit about Tech Shop and its goals? Sure. So Tech Shop, uh, it's 20,000 square feet, roughly. It has every tool you need to make anything on the planet. So machine tools is metal, um, wood, plastic, electronics, uh, fabric, textiles, 3D printers, laser cutters, 4,000 square feet of open space where people can come in and you know, work on their projects on, on open tables. Uh, we teach classes. You know, about 30% of our, our revenue is in teaching people how to use a welding machine, how to use a computer numerically controlled mill or light, how to use a 3D printer. Uh, we do corporate events, after-school programs, veterans programs, um, you name it. And so, and so g- give me a bit of background on the people who are participating in this, educational background. Uh, you know, what are the requirements that you think are necessary for a person who says they want to they learn more and get involved in Tech Shop? Yeah, I mean, eight years old and a spark for making things. It, it's a, it cuts across all socioeconomic and, and demographics. We, again, you know, it, it, it's fundamental to what it means to be human. Like, we have a thumb, right, from an evolutionary biology perspective, and what do you do with it? You, you use it to create tools, and, and what do you do the t- use the tools for to, to make things? It's, it's who we are as humans, whether it's whether it's baking or, or whether it's knitting or, or, or you know making um, you know something something larger and more sophisticated. And so what we're doing is we're tapping into that innate uh, desire. I think we kind of lost it during the Industrial Revolution when it was cheaper and easier to let somebody else make something all around the world, you know, using materials and processes we didn't understand. Now these tools are so cheap and actually very easy to use that there's been a, this large resurgence of interest in, in making. And so we had artists, like 30% of our members were artists, and we're seeing a, a resurgence of large art pieces, public art pieces in places where we open because you know most artists don't have access to a water jet, which will cut through five inches thick of anything on the planet, you know, eight, by, eight by 12. So they do these huge metal pieces or wood pieces and assemble them, weld them up together. Again, many people don't have a large enough welding studio to do a 12-foot tall piece, so they're doing that there. Entrepreneurs, and actually lifestyle entrepreneurs, not just ones that are going after angel money or venture capital money, but people who are trying to build you know, a small lifestyle business of, say, $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year, making jewelry or making greeting cards or making um, clothing for their friends and, and family. So you said something. So I, I want to touch on something because you talked earlier where you said the future is here. It's, not, it's just not evenly distributed. Um, and you talked about how access to capital uh, is, is easier than it's ever been. But, you know, but I would argue that in a lot of communities, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and so I want to get your thoughts on, on one of the, that, some of the issues that people have with the movement. Uh, and for many people, that's, you know, when we're talking about what this movement is, uh, there's been the critique and the criticism that it has a reputation for being kind of a, a, a rich white guy hobby. What do you think when you hear that? 
Well, I mean, guilty as charged, right? You know, these things are very expensive to set up. Um, it, it takes three and a half million to get one of one of our spaces set up. Three and a half it's million. Not, yeah, and, and you've got the good news is you know you've got one there in Baltimore. Um, the uh, the Under Armour guys have uh, have helped to set one up, and so you know as we as we get the eye of community leaders and they see the success of these platforms, we're going to see these things built out um, over time. Um, and frankly, that's why I quit my job at Tech Shop was I didn't feel like we were moving fast enough and that we needed we, I needed I personally needed to do a better job of reaching out to a broader set of community members to be able to attract the capital and the knowledge in the community to build these. We need these in every major city in the world, um, and it's killing me that we're not we're not everywhere. The good news for for you know your listeners in particular is that you do have one there in Baltimore, and you should go visit it, and become a member, and check it out and see what it is that they're doing. So, so you have the ear of, of policymakers. They're listening to the show. Uh, you know, what are the type of things that you think that policymakers can also do to help accelerate this type of movement and accelerate the access that this movement uh, that this movement actually hopes to push for? Absolutely, great question. Um, I, I would start with the schools. So, it, you know, it's clear to me that every elementary school, junior high, and high school is going to have a maker space within the next decade. The question becomes how well will it be um, outfitted? Will it only go into, you know, the, uh, the neighborhoods that already have everything? Hmm. Will they? Will we provide the teachers the training uh, that they need to be able to, uh, you know, effectively introduce these technologies? And, and tools, and that's where I think policymakers can have a uh, make a, a very big difference. Most elementary school administrators that I've talked to have heard of the movement and are interested in putting a makerspace in, but they don't know how. They don't have access to the capital, and the infrastructure hasn't been built yet. And that that needs to happen at the high school level. I you know we're gonna it's we're not gonna call it shop class, but essentially that's what we're bringing back. We're bringing back the tools the 21st century version of those tools back into the classroom and it will help kids that aren't going to college pick up skills that they need to be plumbers and electricians and and electronics technicians and CNC operators and and welders as well as be a great platform for the kids that do plan on going to college. So I actually see this as an opportunity to reintegrate the high school classroom where you've got you know the kids that are on the college track as well as the kids who aren't necessarily on a college track working in the same environment which I think will actually help socially um, as well, because it turns out the other guys aren't that different than we are. And does, does our current curriculum actually support this type of thinking? Yes and no. I mean, there, there is a way of working this into the Common Core. Um, I, I'm working with the University of Hawaii on that. So uh, we have the, the bones, the infrastructure to be able to do it. At the moment, what we lack is the vision, the imagination, and the desire. And you know, it's it's conversations like these that will help spark that those kinds of conversations. You're listening to Future City, and we've been talking with Mark Hatch, the author of the Maker Movement Manifesto. Mark, it is so great talking to you. Thanks again. It's my pleasure, Wes. Thank you. You're tuned to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, we hear from engineering professor Debbie Chatra, who is skeptical about the Maker Movement's ability to include people on the margins. That's next. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and today on Future City, we've been exploring the do-it-yourself lifestyle movement called the Maker Movement. We've talked with two leaders in the movement, and now we're going to switch gears a little bit. Now we're going to speak with Debbie Chatra, 
who wrote an article for The Atlantic back in 2015 called Why I Am Not a Maker. She's also a professor of engineering at Olin College of Engineering, and we're now calling her in London, where she's currently on sabbatical. Debbie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Debbie, first, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? You're a professor now, correct? Sure. And in fact, I was last year when I wrote the article as well. I've been at Olin since 2003. Um, I I teach engineering, and Olin is a college that was really founded with a commitment to to hands-on engineering. Um, And in fact, I teach our first-year design course there, which is very much a hands-on course. By the sounds of it, it would sound like you are the perfect maker, right, uh, according to the definition. But your article says different. Uh, you know, in your article, you wrote how it brings up a lot of the interesting potential issues with the makers movement. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about what some of those potential issues with the movement are? My point was not so much that I think that making is bad or I don't think it's important. And in fact, one of the things I wrote about in the article was a, an article I wrote, to, a letter to my young self that when I was 16, I was encouraging my past self to learn how to to do more um, hands-on work. But what I really wanted to get across in the article was the idea that making is not the only thing in our society that's valuable, and in particular, that it's possible that we overvalue making, and certainly it's possible that we undervalue work that doesn't involve making objects, and particularly caregiving. Interesting. So, so, so explain exactly what you mean by that, that we overvalue making, but we undervalue caregiving. Partly it's a sort of cultural push toward the importance of making that, I, you know, I certainly, I have friends who work in the Silicon Valley tech world, and they use phrases like real artistship, right? That sort of the most important thing that you can do is, is make physical things or make sort of discrete code that gets sent out into the world. Um, what is often overlooked, of course, is the enormous amount of work that we do to take care of each other every day. And one of the things about that work is that it can't be automated. Um, it can't really be made more efficient, right? If you're taking care of a child for eight hours, it means you're taking care of a child for eight hours. There's no economy of scale. There's no efficiency. It's actually it's something for you know someone to sort of package up and then sell and make money off. It's just it's a thing that needs to be done, that we need to take care of each other every day these things don't sort of lend themselves to these narratives of, oh, you can like do this thing that's really important and it'll make, make your world better. So, as I said, my point is not that I don't think that making is important and I don't think that creativity and innovation is important in our world. My point is that there are a lot of things that are also important, um, and many of those things are underappreciated, underpaid, and work that just generally isn't sort of appreciated. And, and so that, I mean, it doesn't just include um, caregiving, it includes education, it includes things like healthcare. So one of the things about these, these types of labor is that it doesn't get cheaper with time. Like, there's, we haven't gotten more productive, we haven't gotten more efficient. The classic example is that it costs the same amount of time to prepare and perform a string quartet in 1950 as it does today. Right? There's no, there's no sort of efficiency, there's nothing that gets affected by technology very much. So from the point of view of economists, like this is literally it's a problem. It's called Baumol's cost disease, right? Which is that labor does not get cheaper over time. So there's this sort of sense that that these things are important, but in a way we begrudge every dollar that we spend on them because we're used to thinking of it things in terms of, oh you make an investment and you get a return. Ideally you get a large return. And many of these things are things that, that we do because they're necessary to do to care for each other, to raise our children, to take care of our elderly. They're not things that it's possible 
to make a profit on, much less think about it as a, as a return on our investment. One of the things that I've really found interesting uh, and fascinating with the piece that you pulled together is how we use certain words to describe certain things, and oftentimes what it means is we exclude others. Uh, so when we talk about things like do and the maker movement uh, and, uh, and, and taking away the emphasis on things like education, uh, uh, education and, and child care and some of the other things you mentioned, uh, whether or not we are intentionally or otherwise uh, doing this because we're also excluding the role of women in this movement. What is your feeling on that? Sure. I mean, a lot of the labor that I've been talking about, that sort of underappreciated non-making labor, is highly gendered, right? It's work that's predominantly done by women. And what's more, a lot of the making that's done, by, that has historically been done by women, which is typically in the context of the household, although by no means exclusively, mm-hmm. has been underappreciated. So undervalued or not, either not seen outside the house or undervalued. You know, it's not what gets in, in art museums. And then similarly, of course, there's the fact that all of the making that does get done, that does, you know, go for sale or does, does get to art museums, all of that, that was supported by other people, invisible people, who were doing the labor to make it possible for that to happen, right? So for every sort of great painter in history, in sort of Western, Western art, there was almost certainly women who were responsible for, like, getting them their food and, like, cleaning their house. And all of that is sort of invisible. So part, part of this idea is, I mean, there's a few sides to it. The side I focused on was this idea that we focus on making and we exclude caregiving. But, of course, there's the other side of it, which is that we exclude um, women and certain groups from making. And that's actually the part of the maker movement that I am generally interested in, right, is having more people have access to the ability to sort of innovate in objects, the ability to make things. Debbie, you, you brought up some incredibly important issues and, and, and very good points today. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Great. Thank you so much. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. So today we're exploring the ups and downs of the maker movement. Now that we've had a chance to look at it from a larger perspective, let's head home to Baltimore, where we'll look at some of the innovative new projects that have been inspired by the maker movement. First, we'll talk with Dana Johnson. She is the managing director of the Reinvestment Fund, a national leader in financing neighborhood revitalization. She's been especially active in finding funding for arts projects in Baltimore. Dana, it is great having you here. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Reinvestment Fund actually does, its origins, and and what it focuses on? Sure. Um, The Reinvestment Fund is a 30-plus-year-old nonprofit community development loan fund. Um, We use data and analytics and investment capital to improve the quality of life in communities that lack access to opportunity. Uh, We were founded in Philadelphia, and uh, we've had a Baltimore office for about six years. We have invested over a billion dollars in our 30-year history. We raise capital from a wide variety of investors, including individuals, um, foundations, and national banks. And we take that capital and our knowledge of communities and uh, lend it out for different kinds of community development projects that meet our mission. So that includes things like affordable housing, grocery stores, um, health centers, daycare centers, charter schools, a wide variety of things that communities need to thrive. And how large is the fund now? Uh, we have about $800 million under management right now. And so, so if I'm an artist or if I'm a, if I'm a maker and I have something that I want to build that I want to do, that's where you then come in and step in? Right. We have 
long recognized that arts and culture projects are a critical component of having thriving communities. And we provide loans for those projects. Most of the arts pro- arts-related projects we've done have been major development projects like the Parkway Theater and the Center Theater here in Baltimore, for example. Um, we've increasingly, over the last couple of years, um, through some grant support we got from the Kresge and Cerna Foundations, tried to sort of look below that big, giant project level to understand how we can support the creative economy and artists in being able to own their own space, um, live in safe, code-compliant space, um, and have space to do their their work and their production and their performance. And so for, for people who are coming up, I'm, I'm assuming education then is also part of it, you know, where they, they're receiving they're receiving funds and they're receiving a loan. But, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, there's oftentimes can be a difference between the artist and understanding the business mindset that takes place with it. Absolutely. There's a huge knowledge gap we have found in um, not just artists, but lots of borrowers that we work with. Um, it could be a small grocer. It could be a group of parents who want to char- start a charter school. They're not real estate professionals. So there's a big knowledge gap, how to negotiate acquisition of a property. What kinds of due diligence or homework do you need to do about the property you know, what kinds of building code issues or renovations, what level of renovations and how much will they cost? Are there environmental issues? There's a whole wide range of things, even before you get to how am I going to pay for it, that um, is really important to know going into a real estate project. Um, so we we try to provide technical assistance to our borrowers across the board. But in the case of the arts and the creative users here in Baltimore, we've used some of our grant funding to um, provide some outside technical assistance. So we've partnered up with BARCO, which is the Baltimore Arts Realty Corporation, um, which is a nonprofit development company here in Baltimore that is focused on the creative economy. And they have, uh, and particularly their director, Amy Bonnets, um, they have the technical expertise on the real estate side, but they also have this, you know, increasing expertise in, in artists and the creative economy and how to sort of marry up these things. So we've we've been funding them and partnering with them to provide that technical assistance and work with them to get to a point where they can access a loan to finance their project. What's your default rate? Overall, they're very low. We are just gearing up to close our first small arts project um, next month, actually wow. end of this month. Excellent. And so who so who are tell me a bit about who the average borrower is? Who who comes to you and says, you know, hey, I got a I got a concept, I have an idea, age, neighborhood, income level. Tell me a bit about your borrowers. Um the first project we started working on, which is not going to be the first to close, um, these things can take a long time yes. to yeah. go from idea <laughs> to reality. Um, but it's a group of artists um, in the Bromo district on the mm-hmm. west side. There were three artists um, who had been running their own um, theater companies and had decided to come together and really wanted to own their own space and um, provide not only space for their own theater companies, but also low-cost, affordable space to help other theater and performing groups have um, accessible space as well. And they were awarded a property. Um, they bought a property, and then they were awarded from the Baltimore Development Corporation a property on Howard Street. Uh, most of the block is vacant, and they have been chugging away at raising capital, um, working on the design and the pricing of the 
property and, um, you know, will be getting underway shortly. And one of the other projects that you've been involved when, uh, involved with is, is OpenWorks. Right. Uh, you know, which is now one of the biggest makerspaces in the country. Can you talk a bit about that project, how it came to you? What was your process in deciding that this was, a, uh, that this was something that you were going to, uh, going to invest in? Well, uh, we had financed the Center Theater project, and Amy, who is the head of Barco, um, was a big driver in that project, so we had gotten to know her through that. And um, we knew that Barco and the RW Deutsch Foundation were um, really interested in, in this kind of space. They were really intentional about the location of the building. It sits right just between, really, the southeast edge of the Station North Arts and Entertainment District and the Johnson Square neighborhood. Um, and so uh, they they found this property and, um, you know, got a purchase contract on it and set about designing this space and raising a huge amount of capital to get it done. Um, we were really interested in it for a few reasons. Um, obviously, the impact of the property you know, it's sort of, to use a cliche, kind of punches above its weight. Um, a lot of the projects that we invest in, you know, take abandoned, um, blighting properties and put them back into productive use. And that in and of itself is a huge boost to neighborhoods. Um, but this property, in addition to, you know, creating this beautiful facility, also can be an engine for the Baltimore city economy. Um, having sort of affordable studio space, access to these incredible, incredibly expensive um, and productive fabrication tools. They are creating affordable access to a wide variety of tools that can help people, um, not just the hobbyist who wants to come in on the weekend, but, you know, with the studios there, people can start small businesses there. And now Barco is thinking about, well, what's the next step? You know, is there a next facility where you're ready to graduate from a micro studio of 150 square feet to a space where you may still have some sharing capabilities, but you need to grow your business and and you're ready for that next step. So the idea is to create a whole kind of ecosystem to help those businesses get incubated at OpenWorks and then graduate and be able to hire more people and and you know have more impact. We've been talking with Dana Johnson, who is the managing director of the Reinvestment Fund a national leader in financing neighborhood revitalization. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. If you're just joining us, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. Now we're going to talk with someone who has directly benefited from Dana's work on artists and makerspaces in Baltimore, Stefano Vallone, an artisan guitar maker who teaches woodworking classes at OpenWorks and Station North Tool Library. He builds his guitars from the space he rents at OpenWorks. Stefano, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you're a recent transplant from Montreal. You're not a Baltimorean, right? No, correct. And so why'd you choose Baltimore? Uh, long story short, my wife and I were long distance for about four years. Okay. And she moved here for school. She was accepted at um, Johns Hopkins. And so you found this environment welcoming for, for an artist and for the artistic community? Oh, yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Why? People are welcoming. Um, the community over at Tool Library and OpenWorks were just had me over there, open arms. They were great. And so, t- talk to us a little bit more about the uh, about the, the Station North Tool Library for those who are not familiar with it. It's as the name implies. It's a tool library. You can show up there and uh, rent out tools if you don't have any. Um, anything from screwdrivers to 
bigger machinery, uh, power drills, and also use their own space to make your projects. So, for example, if you need some, some tools for the house renovations, you can rent them out over there or you know, craft your own projects within their space. And then so you then took that and then eventually said you wanted to do something within OpenWorks. Right. So how did that transition take place? Right. Well, I, I've been a guitar maker professionally for the last three or four years. And so moving here, I didn't have any space to work out of other than a small space at home. When I met the people over at Tool Library, that's when they told me about OpenWorks opening up shortly after I moved. And so they, they, they welcomed me to work into their space up until uh, OpenWorks opened up. And that's when I transitioned over to OpenWorks. So you make guitars by hand. Right. How, how, did, how, how did you even first get into this idea that you can make guitars by hand? I'm kind of an obsessive person. I really want to understand how things work. So I initially just tore my first electric guitar apart, put it right back together, understood how that worked, and then thought, hey, you know what? People actually make these. It's not just you know a factory that pumps out instruments. People actually can make these. So I figured, you know what? I want to learn how to make one. And from there, I uh, found a school in Montreal that teaches a three-year program, guitar making. And I just, I, I fell in love with the process. And you went from also essentially a hobby, mm-hmm. an interest in it, mm-hmm. to now then having commercial aspirations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so how did this space or how did this how did this culture, this environment, kind of the entrepreneurial makerspace idea, how did that help you with that transition from going from hobby into now something I have, something commercial that I want to share with the world? So I've been doing this for the past three years professionally. It didn't start just as uh, my transition to OpenWorks uh, happened. But OpenWorks has helped me to just focus all my attention onto the building aspect. Uh, previously, I was... Uh, sharing my time between repairs and building. Now I do exclusively builds only. I only do the, the, the hand-making of the guitar. I don't take any more repairs from clients, which is, for most people, the bread and butter. Uh, at OpenWorks, they offer us a lot of the good machinery, good quality machinery. Uh, they're super open-minded with you know us expressing our art, you know, having the time, the space to practice what we want to do. And so when when I arrived there, I was like, you know what? This It's going to happen here. Stefano Valone, a Baltimore guitar maker and entrepreneur, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. Thank you. As we head towards the break, that guitar you hear playing in the background was played on a custom-made guitar crafted by Stefano Valone, who, as you just heard, is an artist who's renting space at the Open Works here in Baltimore. You are tuned in to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Stay with us. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. For the last portion of our show, we're going to turn to a subject very important to me, education. How can makerspaces, community areas that foster creativity and innovation, be championed by our local schools? The Digital Harbor Foundation here in Baltimore illustrates some of the ways maker philosophy can be used by educators to engage and inspire our young people. 
From the Digital Harbor Foundation, I'm joined by their executive director, Sean Grimes. Sean, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. So so for those who don't know, and, and also I say for full disclosure, I've uh, been a, a fan and admirer and supporter of, of Digital Harbor and the work you guys do for a while. But for those who don't know, uh, what is the Digital Harbor Foundation? When was it started? What's its story? Yeah, so about four and a half years ago, we reopened a closed-down rec center in South Baltimore and reimagined it as a youth tech center or youth makerspace. So we provide after-school and summer programs for kids in grades 3 through 12, uh, all around the maker philosophy. And some of that is uh, with electronics and programming and coding. And then some of that is with low-tech, like cardboard and hot glue. And it's interesting because when I when I first heard about uh, Digital Harbor, it was going from rec center to tech center, right? But even since then, that's even continued to evolve where it's not just technology. Tell me about the evolution with that. Yeah, the, the evolution started early on, actually. So, you know, when we opened, we had a, a little bit of tech equipment. It was kind of the secret of, you know, we were a tech center with very little tech. Um, and we had an unfortunate event uh, where we had a break-in. A young man stole uh, what little computers that we had. And rather than closing down programs the next day, um, we sort of scoured the Internet for something fun to do with the kids. And we came across this project called ArtBots. And ArtBots use pool noodles and electric toothbrushes to make robots that draw. Um, just those simple materials. And so we did it with the kids thinking they would enjoy it for you know one day. It would get us through the day. Uh, tomorrow we'll have to figure something else out. Well. The kids enjoyed it so much, they didn't even realize we didn't bring the computers out. Uh, and they enjoyed that project for two weeks before we had to find something new to move them on to. And it was this kind of opening moment of the kids don't necessarily need pure technology to use. They need an opportunity to explore, to uh, discover ways that things can fit together and problem solve in very unique ways with very common materials. And that's what people say is kind of the whole point of the maker's movement, that it's not just about how are you creating technologies, but this really is about how are you just using your imagination and and, uh, and your creativity in your hands to be able to make stuff happen. Yeah, it's like unlocking your inner MacGyver. Uh, you know, so using a rubber band and a paper clip, how can you solve a problem? Um, how can you be creative and productive? And uh, it's about, you know, expressing a little bit of your individuality in the problems that you solve. And it's also building up confidence in your skill set. Uh, you know, it's it's based off of the DIY movement. It's based off of the, uh, you know, project-based learning and those types of things that were meant to instill, um, you know, confidence and problem-solving capabilities. And it's just taking them to the next iteration. And so when we talk about uh, how this then prepares kids for, for the world. Uh, you know, one major metric that we'll look at is for particularly for students who are finishing high school, uh, how many of them are they either prepared for college or careers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, currently in Baltimore City, there are about 5,000 high school graduates every single year. We know that about 500 of them are then prepared for college or careers as they finish up high schools. What is Digital Harbor's role in terms of impacting that number of the amount of kids who, when they finish school, are then prepared for either college or careers. Yeah, we're all about uh, you know creative, productive adults, and so that is you know one of those two routes of either going to college or going into a career, maybe a combination of the two. Right? You know, you're working off that student debt while you're uh, establishing it. Um, and so what we're trying to do is build up you know their communication skills and their problem solving skills, so that no matter what course or what career field they end up in, um, they're learning and they have the ability to learn whatever skill they need once they get there, and they have the confidence that they can learn anything that they need to know. Um, for instance, you know, I, I tell this funny story of my mother-in-law uh, who uh, my sister-in-law needed her hair French braided. Uh, and jokingly, she said, well, ask Sean if he can do it. He can do anything.
anything. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I had no clue what I was doing. I pull up a YouTube video on how to French braid hair, and bam, I French braided her hair. Um, but I had the confidence in myself that I could learn whatever I needed to learn in that moment. Um, and we want kids to be able to, you know, have that same confidence of, uh, you know, you need to know how to put together a doghouse for some reason. Bam, go to YouTube, find out, you know, but you know that you can figure that out. You're a maker hairdresser, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, I, I like to see you try to do some of my hair. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 how many kids do you work with right now? So we work with about 100. We have capacity for about 120 a week. Um, so our programs are two days a week. We have a Monday, Wednesday group and a Tuesday, Thursday group. And they span, uh, you know, about 60 in a given day from third through 12th grade. Our goal is to sort of work with youth for an, uh, a longer period of time. So we want to work with them for about 200 hours before we see them move on. So we're not really going for a drop in the bucket. Like we want to be spooning some water into that bucket. How many, and, and tell me tell me a bit about the, the demographics of the kids you're working with. Yeah, we are, uh, we, we like to say that we're representative of Baltimore, all of Baltimore. So we're about 70%, uh, you know, students of color or different cultural uh, backgrounds. We're about 70% uh, at the poverty line or below or, or free and reduced meals is, you know, how we track it. My proudest stat is that we're nearly 50% female, um, and that has been a very intentional effort by my staff to uh, make our programs more inclusive of young ladies in the area. Is that, has that been a general problem that, you, that you've heard? I mean, what, what's the response that you generally get from boys versus the response you get from girls? You know, boys, uh, as this was described to me by one of our young ladies who was helping us figure out this problem, is boys can, you know, meet each other and they're friends right away. But girls need to establish relationships with people before uh, they can be friends. And so, you know, they constantly uh, have this fear of being on the outside or feeling like they're on the outside. And so the way that you build that relationship needs to be a little bit different than it is with a guy. Um, and one of the ways that we do that is we changed our marketing. We stopped saying we're a tech program. We stopped saying, do you want to learn computers or robots? And instead we said, you know, do you like to know how things work? Do you like to take things apart? And that's something that's, you know, pretty much universally people can identify with of any gender or race or culture um, is this thirst for knowledge. And so if you make it more general like that, it's a little more inclusive. And then we do some very specific, uh, we have a program that uh, our young girls started called the Makerettes, which is an all-girls user group. They meet every other Friday, um, and they either come up with projects to do themselves, or they come up with projects for uh, the entire program to do. Are your students going to college afterwards, or are they going directly in the workforce? It all depends. We have a very small sample size right now. We have about 13 kids who have been with us for that 200 hours mark and have graduated high school. 12 of them have gone on to college or careers. And that 13th moved, and we just haven't been able to track down what he's done after uh, he left our program. So, so when people say, well, you know, this is not, it's not pushing people towards college. So, for example, if, if, if an argument is that, you know, really you're not putting people into a knowledge-based economy. Really what you're doing is, is, is you're, you're, you're tracking them into, into manual labor, manual employment, et cetera. Uh, but not necessarily into the knowledge economy that we have going forward. What's your response to that? Uh, my argument would be is that it, the knowledge economy assumes that the knowledge that you need right now to be successful is the knowledge you will need in five years to be successful. Mm -hmm. What we're teaching kids is the confidence to learn on their own whatever the future career field might be. Sean Grimes, the executive director of the Digital Harbor Foundation. Sean, thank you so much for your time today and for the leadership that you're providing to so many kids in Baltimore City. My pleasure, Wes. Thank you for having me.
Lots of fascinating conversation about the Makers Movement and its hopes for here in Baltimore. But as we close today's episode, I want to leave with a couple thoughts. The fact that the Makers Movement is a reality is exciting. You know, robots walking around county fairs, handmade guitars being produced in Station North. The Makers Movement is growing, but so is inequality. The Makers Movement champions some of our most cherished American values, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, and a strong belief in individual liberty. As the movement continues to grow, we know the definition of a success is not just individual success stories, but collective access. Alleviating economic inequality must be part of our future city, and any solution must hold true to that. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback. And you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And my handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit us at WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So, until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.